Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 42 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 20th of November. And Leon, what have we got this time? Well, we're going to have a chat with Alex Peru. He is a influencer and works in the area of LinkedIn and he advises businesses and uh, people on how to use LinkedIn to develop business and their careers and it's quite amazing. Yeah, very good. He's um, He regards LinkedIn as much more business oriented, much more useful than uh, Facebook or Twitter. And after Alex Peru, we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake and he's going to be talking to us about Australia's latest unemployment figures. Anyway, here's Alex Peru and what to do on LinkedIn. Alex Peru, a LinkedIn influencer. What is that? When I sold my door-to-door sales company and moved back to Sydney, I had a um, started a consulting business and uh, we're looking at all different forms of marketing and we wasted a lot of money on the traditional forms and really wasn't working. And there's a lot of business, uh, social buzz around online marketing and social media and we dabbled into a lot of different things and we realized that LinkedIn was the most powerful out of them all, mainly because of its ability to get you in front of media, uh, journalists, get you partnerships and also generate you one-on-one leads. So I guess for us, um, the reason why we said uh, came up with the name Linkfluencer is to become an influencer through LinkedIn. So, And our mission is to change and transform how business owners market themselves. So how it powerful is LinkedIn? I mean, why and why is it so powerful? Well, if you look at business I, I, and simplify it, I believe that we're all in the business of marketing. And when it comes to marketing, the main goal or the outcome there is to get your message right, first of all, but then get that message in front of key decision makers. Now, there's 360 million users on LinkedIn and 49% of those users are key decision makers. So uh, we've managed to get tons of free media exposures and are now write for Entrepreneur Magazine, Huffington Post, these um, HubSpot, these are all opportunities that came through LinkedIn. We've generated a ton of uh, partnerships through LinkedIn, but also connecting with your target market one-on-one and establishing a meaningful relationship, that has been phenomenal for many of the businesses we've had in the past couple of years. So what steps would you take a business through to connect with good partners on LinkedIn? Well, it's interesting to say that because we've actually built, ironically, we didn't really know this uh, when we first started, but we've now developed a system called the Three Steps to LinkedIn Mastery. And essentially, the, uh, from a very high-level perspective, it's um, plan, connect, profit. So first step is creating an outcome or a plan on why you're actually on LinkedIn in the first place. 90% of people you speak with, and if you go down to the CBD of Sydney and ask 100 people, you know, why you're on LinkedIn, most people won't be able to answer that. We, we help them create a plan. Um, we get clear on their marketing objectives, their outcome for using LinkedIn. We look at their client avatar, and then we build a LinkedIn profile that resonates with that avatar uh, instead of it looking like a resume. And then the connect stage is all about building a sales funnel. We now know who we need to connect with. Let's go and use the advanced search feature to find that target market, connect with them, and then profit stage is all about building a relationship with that network that you've connected with so that um, you build meaningful relationships that you can then promote to and gain business from. And this is quite successful. Businesses do actually uh, build up their markets that way? Yeah, we've done it. Uh, We've had plenty of our members do it. We had one member, uh, he started, he was a startup generating 5K a month. He's now doing 
20k a month, so 400% increase. We had a guy who was in the lead up to the launch of uh, a new business that he started. He got featured in 10 media publications, managed to uh, partner with Hertz, Virgin, um, some big names like that. Um, we personally use it to get featured in over 50 media publications um, over the last two years, and we've never sent out a press release. Um, we connected with a guy, Cruel Price, who's actually a LinkedIn influencer. He's been approved by LinkedIn. And uh, he managed to sell 17 coaches. Uh, his licensing package generated over 100K, and um, in six months, were about 30 Aussies were, were in South Africa, all as a result of marketing through LinkedIn. I would imagine a lot of people aren't even aware of the power of LinkedIn. Yeah, it's a shame. I think I really... I fell in love with what LinkedIn have done and I think they are uh, changing the world dramatically in terms of how we connect and, um, you know, they say that six degrees of separation, I think what LinkedIn have done is reduced it to three. Um, the challenge now is how do you get the masses to understand the right way to network and market on a platform and I think that's, that's probably been the biggest challenge but in terms of building a platform, I personally think it's the most powerful networking and marketing platform of the 21st century. And that might be a bit biased, but... <laughs> well, what, what makes it more powerful than, say, having a Twitter account or a Facebook account for a business? Well, I think it's... I, I, I wouldn't really compare them. I, 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 I think it's a matter of having uh, access to all accounts that are relevant to your, to your target market. The, the, the thing I love about LinkedIn is because of your ability to build a funnel or LinkedIn calls these tags. So um, build tags where you're able to connect with people, um, then filter them into those tags and then be able to build relationships with them. You can't do that anywhere. Like, yeah, you can have folders on Twitter, but to be able to build relationship with them step by step, very, very hard. Um, Facebook's great for B2C marketing, but uh, I've never seen any uh, platform with the power that LinkedIn has when it comes to generating partnerships and media and one-on-one -on -one leads all under the same uh, umbrella. LinkedIn is essentially B2B, whereas uh, the rest aren't. Would that be right? Facebook, definitely B2C. I, I can't really comment on uh, Twitter. I've got a Twitter handle and I've been on that for a couple of months. Look, Twitter's probably yeah, a little bit more B2C. I wouldn't really see um, a B2B component, but yeah, I, yeah you're right. And so how many connections does a business need to become profitable? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it's the number of connections. I think it's the quality of those connections. There's a massive debate, and it's been going for years now, whether you should have a quality contact or quantity. And we've come up with a uh, three-step criteria that people, our members go through before they even connect with anyone to make sure that they're a serious LinkedIn user. Because you've got a lot of people on LinkedIn who just don't even use it. So what's the point of sending them an invitation if they're actually not even getting it or they're not logging in? So um, coming back to your point, I think it's the quality of the contacts you have. And the more you have in your network, obviously, uh, the more relationships you can build. But it does come back down to the quality. And how do you assess the quality then as a business? Yeah, so based on those three, um, I can share those three things with you if you like. Go on, please. Yeah, when you when you see someone that's you use the advanced search feature, you know you find someone who you uh, who's in that target market, and you're about to send them a connection invitation. We we recommend, and we've trialed at least fifteen 
to 20 different ways to identify whether someone's a valuable contact. And the first thing is they have to have a picture. Like if you don't have a picture, sorry, but you're, you're just not a serious LinkedIn user. Um, and I want to know who I'm actually connecting with. How do I know that person says they're from Sydney, but you know they might be from Nigeria or wherever it might be. Um, you definitely have to have a picture. Then you have to have over 150 connections um, because that, again, through our testing, we realize that once someone hits over 150 connections, they're usually a little bit more active than the rest. And then the third one, which is really the clincher, is whether they've completed more than 50% of the uh, LinkedIn profile because that takes effort. And once someone puts effort into anything, whether it be their LinkedIn profile, you know, meeting with someone, they're more likely to uh, use that service or, or that platform. Do they need anything like recommendations or anything like that? Definitely helps. Recommendations is the f- fastest way to build social cred and uh, build your personal brand because it's one thing me saying all the achievements I've had and that's important, but when you have 50, 100, 150 people backing up what you're saying and actually voicing that opinion as well, that's huge credibility. So, yeah, it does help. But then again, uh, to get started, most people who get started don't have them. So they're the things that we recommend people attain as they like as the weeks go on and they're updating their profile. So really, in the end, what you should be looking for is quality as opposed to quantity. Well, I think both. A lot of this is, and here's my challenge with a lot of uh, companies out there that uh, go out there. You know, they're training on LinkedIn, uh, they're providing LinkedIn education, and they make it sound very easy. So, you, oh, all you have to do is optimize your LinkedIn profile, and people will naturally find you. Now, ninety percent of people that actually look for you are not even your target market. So that's what I call a passive approach. What we teach is a proactive approach of looking for your target market and literally connecting with hundreds of people every single month. But those hundred are actually LinkedIn users that are on there quite regularly. So that way what you do is you build a quality network of hundreds of your target market, but also over time you get uh, the quantity as well. Final question, how much time should a business put in to working on LinkedIn? Yeah, uh, we get this probably in the top five questions we get asked. And my response to that is the ROI is based on the effort you put in. You know, there's no doubt that you will generate results by building meaningful relationships, connecting with them and building that value. So there's no, there's no doubt that uh, you'll get the results. But like any marketing strategy, you know, if you put two hours into something, you're going to get two hours in return in terms of your um, results. So it's really, I, I wouldn't say it's time, it's more based on what do you, what do you want to achieve and uh, going ahead and uh, implementing the appropriate time to achieve that. Um, now, the average time we spend on LinkedIn per day is an hour, and right. that's what we recommend to others. One hour a day? Yes. Alex Peru, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. What do you think about that? Do you are you a LinkedIn subscriber? I am. I am. I, I've actually got two jobs out of it. Yeah, it's pretty was, good. Which is not bad. Two good jobs. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the quality of um, the offers you get there are much better. Now, Saul S. Lake, and uh, what's going on in the economy? 
so let's like the unemployment numbers last week were surprisingly good, uh, sending Australia's unemployment rate down to 5.9% with what was apparently the creation of 58,600 jobs. What's your assessment of it? Well, I don't believe the figures at face value, and I don't think the Statistics Bureau Bureau does either. It's hard to believe that there would have been almost 60,000 jobs created in a single month and more than two-thirds of them in one state, namely Victoria. That said, however, I think the figures are consistent with the idea that's been emerging over the last six months or so, that Although overall economic growth in Australia is remaining below trend at around 2% per annum, employment is doing better than you might have expected if that's all you had known. On average, over the last few months, employment in trend terms has been growing at about twenty to 25000 a month. And that probably is a realistic gauge of how employment growth is actually tracking, partly because employment growth has been picking up over the course of this year. More people who had previously not actively looked for work because they didn't think they had much chance of finding it, have instead taken up the search for work this year. That means that the so-called participation rate has trended up. Despite that, the unemployment rate has levelled out and in the month of September it would seem come down, although again that ought perhaps to be taken with a grain of salt and attention instead paid to the trend figures, which suggest that the unemployment rate has been fairly steady at 6.1% since March this year, after peaking at 6.2% in the December quarter of last year. Now, again, that may not sound particularly exciting, but it's important to remember that it's happening at a time when overall economic growth is running at 2%, well below what the conventional wisdom had said was a growth rate of about three and a quarter percent that would be required to hold the unemployment rate unchanged. And if the unemployment rate has indeed peaked at 6.2% in the December quarter of last year and the early months of this year and is now gradually inching downwards, then that's also a lot better than had been forecast by the Reserve Bank earlier this year and by the Treasury in this year's 2015-2016 budget. Uh, What that's saying, though, is isn't it that we're moving away from dependency on capital-intensive industries like mining to labour-intensive industries like housing construction, for example? Well, I think that is an important part of the story, that we are moving away from growth-led as it was up until about 2012-2013 by the most capital-intensive form of economic activity known to mankind, namely mining, towards growth led by a broader range of mostly more labour-intensive activities, such as dwelling construction, tourism, healthcare, education to some extent, and other personal and commercial services. And that almost by definition means that for each percentage point of GDP growth, you will get more employment growth than you would have done otherwise. Now, another factor could be that we've had relatively soft wages growth, that is the cost of employing people has been growing only very slightly compared with the previous decade. And since other data are telling us that businesses remain hesitant about undertaking significant capital or investment expenditures, 
It could be that this ongoing moderation in wages growth is encouraging employers where they do see an increase in the demand for their products to meet that demand by employing more people rather than undertaking additional capital expenditure. There is a downside to all of this, which is that because we're seeing labour employment growth growing in areas that are relatively labour intensive and because it may be being partly prompted by uh, softness in wages growth leading to an increase in labour relative to capital in some industries, that could be one of the reasons why productivity growth has remained disappointingly slow in the last couple of weeks. And of course, as We know productivity growth is the most important source of sustainable increases in real wages. It could be that one of the side effects of this rotation in the sources of growth that we've been experiencing over the last year or so is that wages growth and hence household income growth remains relatively low. But at least for the time being, it means that the transition away from growth led by the resources boom is being accompanied by a lower unemployment rate than many had feared a year or so ago. That said, it does mean, though, that uh, we can expect wages growth to remain pretty low while we make the transition. Uh, That's right. That's the point I was seeking to make, that the growth in employment we're seeing is in what traditionally have been relatively low-paying, lower-wage sectors. And if, as a byproduct of that, overall productivity growth across the economy is low as it has been over the last few years, indeed, as it has been over most of the last 15 years, then you wouldn't expect to see any sustainable acceleration in real wages growth. And that in turn, combined with relatively high levels of household debt, is a reason not to expect the increase in employment we've seen to translate into strong growth in retail sales or household consumer spending more broadly. At the same time, though, just looking forward, where do you see this trend happening? Where do you see this trend travelling? Do you see unemployment? employment dropping further? Well, I think it will, based on some of the leading indicators of employment growth, job advertisements, the hiring intentions component of surveys such as the National Australia Bank and the Census Small Business Surveys, uh, the job vacancies series compiled by the Stats Bureau at quarterly intervals, have all for a couple of years been pointing to a gradual increase in the demand for labour, which does suggest, based on previous relationships that we can expect employment growth to continue at a pace sufficient to prevent any further increases in unemployment in a trend sense and probably to see the rate of unemployment continue inching gradually down. Now that does mean we'll be above the historically regarded full employment rate of unemployment for some time. And of course, other figures tell us that while the unemployment rate itself may have levelled out at a lower rate than had been forecast, there's still quite a bit of hidden unemployment in the Australian economy. That is, people who would like to work but are still not actively looking for it and thus not officially counted as unemployed. And people who are working but who are working fewer hours than they would like to uh, give for economic reasons, uh, both of those indicators suggest that there's still a fair amount of spare capacity in the labour market. And of course, that's one reason why we're not seeing any real evidence of inflationary pressure either in wages or in prices more broadly. Where does it uh, leave interest rates? Uh, Surely this would mean that the Reserve Bank will 
not cut interest rates for some time and will probably sit on its hands. I think that's right. Uh, I've been of the view for some time that there was no real need for the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates or for the financial markets to price in an expectation that they might cut interest rates. And although in its most recent statement on monetary policy, the Reserve Bank did say that the lower than expected outcome for inflation in the September quarter left room for them to ease monetary policy further should that be warranted. And that's an understandable interpretation of the inflation numbers. Uh, My view would be, and I think the Reserve Bank is itself now saying, that they don't think any further easing of monetary policy will be warranted in order to support growth in domestic demand. Instead, it's more likely that such additional support that might be required for domestic demand will come from a further easing of the exchange rate. Now, the exchange rate has found some stability at just above 70 cents over the last couple of months, but I think that's because the US Federal Reserve didn't go ahead with what had been expected to be the first increase in US interest rates at its meeting in September. But that is, I think, now looking more likely, as we discussed a few weeks ago, uh, that the Federal Reserve will increase US interest rates for the first time in nine years at its last meeting for this year in December. And that combined with what I expect will be further weakness in the prices of some of Australia's key commodity exports, I think means that the currency will fall fall further into the high 60s. And that, rather than any further reductions in interest rates, will be what I think the Reserve Bank is looking for to provide what further support to economic growth in Australia it wants to see. So, Les, like, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me again, Leon. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, uh, yes, he says that uh, unemployment is trending down, but that's also because wages growth is so low, as he points out. But as he says, uh, we can probably expect the Reserve Bank to sit on its hands for a while. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. I mean, and Janet Yellen is uh, maybe going to raise it, maybe well, not. Well, they're talking about it. They're talking about it. Yeah. So now, the news, Leon. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, the Japanese economy has contracted with sluggish, sluggish business investment, sending it into its second recession since Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took office in December 2012. Japan's GDP fell 0.8% for the three months of September 30th, coming on top of a 0.7% decline in the second quarter. Business investment shrank 5% in the quarter. That's a second straight quarterly decline. Growth was also hampered by the drop in inventory and stores, which cut 2.1 percentage one points off 2.1 percentage points of growth. Now, Japanese companies are holding back on production because of concerns about slower growth in China and the global economy. Now, in September, Mr. Abe announced plans to boost Japan's GDP, adjusted for inflation, by 20% by 2020, increasing growth by 3% every year. But he didn't offer any details, and economists have dismissed this as unrealistic. And I reckon these latest figures will put pressure on the Abe government to bring in more stimulus. Mark you, that's true of a lot of countries around the world. Yeah, but Japan keeps uh, lurching back into recession. It does, that's right. Well, I guess there's areas of Australia and close, pretty close to that as well. Now, interesting, Gary, the government's hope for securing a rise in the GST has had a boost of sorts, with an opinion poll showing most voters would support it if there was a compensation for lower middle income earners. And the latest Fairfax Ipsos poll shows that a majority of voters, that's only 52%, but it's still a majority, support a GST in a package with tax cuts and other forms of compensation for households on incomes of less than 100000 Just over a quarter of voters, that's 28%, support a, GST, uh, support a GST hike in isolation. 
Now, I reckon this poll is important with the debate over GST increase in recent weeks causing anxiety about a blowback on the coalition backbench. And the poll also shows the coalition is ahead of Labor, 56% to 44% on a two-party preferred basis. So this whole GST debate hasn't dented the coalition's chances of a big victory at the next election. So it's an interesting scenario. It is, and I've got an idea that GST has been used by the government in its sales policy, and it won't go up to 15% if it goes up at all, but other measures will come in. Well, we'll we'll take a look. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Australia's looking to create a free trade agreement with the European Union after the conclusion of talks with the G20 in Turkey. And Malcolm Turnbull told European Council President Donald Tuck and European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker on Sunday that having an FTA with Europe was an important step for Australia. And in his talk with the EU leadership on Sunday, Mr Turnbull sought a timeline for negotiating the proposed FTA with Europe, but he was told doing the groundwork with EU member states would take time. So don't hold your breath. No. No, no, if you do, it might be 12 years. Might be, might be. <laughs> that was as long as the uh, the TPP was. That's right. Now, the Trade Minister, Andrew Robb, has urged his Asia-Pacific counterparts to do more to create a regional trade zone that would encompass 60% of world trade. And speaking of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Manila on Monday, Andrew Robb pressed fellow trade Pacific trade ministers to make that dream happen within a decade. And he said a regional trade zone, which could bring in 23 nations, including China and South Korea, would surpass even the mammoth Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which encompasses 40% of the world's economy. So that'll be interesting to see. If they can get it through, yeah. I mean, the TPP is as clumsy as all hell. That's right, and it still has to get through Congress, and we're not sure about that. No, that's right. Now, after about two years of bilateral tensions, Australia and Indonesia have agreed to restart talks to create a bilateral trade agreement. Now, Trade Minister Andrew Robb said the breakthrough came with a meeting between Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his Indonesian counterpart Joko Widodo, and Turnbull had made a flying visit to Jakarta to rebuild relations. Now, Robb plans to have an Indonesian agreement based on similar lines to the one Australia has with China, South Korea and Japan in one year, and he signals that Australia take a similar approach to the Indonesia trade talks to the model it used for China, that is they'll put all the difficult issues aside and focus on the common goals. Now, I reckon there's a lot going for this because Indonesia has a population of 250 million people. It's got a growing middle class. It's not even in Australia's top 10 trading partners. It's worth about 12 billion. And there was a new report during the week prepared by ANZ and PwC for the Australia-Indonesia Centre, and it urges Australia-Indonesia to work together in areas like fashion, food processing, logistics and animal products, and recommends they seize the trillion-dollar trade opportunities in Southeast Asia by combining forces to sell into third markets as partners rather than competitors. Yeah, the biggest problem apparently seems to be that Indonesia blows hot and cold for no particular reason, and uh, Yoko Widono is a bit like that. He's a bit mercurial. Well, yeah, well, we'll see. But, uh, you know, they'll be a mean partner to have. Now, at the same time, uh, consumer confidence has retreated from its recent two-year high amid concerns about the outlook for the economy. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index slipped 0.6% in the week to Sunday, with people expressing concern about the outlook for the economy in the coming 12 months and the next five years. Australian wage growth has held the lowest, equal slowest rate since the government started issuing data nearly two decades ago. Private sector wage growth fell to a new record low. Official figures show wages rose by 0.6% in the September quarter and the annual pace of growth held steady at the record low of 2.3%. So actually they're going backwards against inflation. That's right. 
Not good. Not good at all. The Australian economy is set for marked improvement next year thanks to a lift in household spending and net exports, according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which rose in October to leave the growth rate only slightly below the trend. The index, which indicates the likely pace of economic three to activity in three to nine months in the future, lifted, lifted to negative 0.08% in October. That's up from negative um, 03 in September. So that's a, a promising sign. Now, uh, signs that the Reserve Bank of Australia is cautiously optimistic about the outlook for the economy, but it's left the door open to cut interest rates further if growth slows. Now, in the minutes of its November the 3rd policy meeting, when policymakers left interest rates unchanged at the record low of 2%, the Reserve Bank of Australia said the inflation outlook might afford some scope for further easing of monetary policy, should that be appropriate to lend of support to demand. Now, that's published in the minutes. It also made clear that the RBA sees recent evidence of ongoing improvement in the economy, Support was flowing to the economy from low interest rates, a weaker Australian dollar, which was bolstering services sector exports and assisting a shift away from mining lead growth to other areas of the economy. And the RBA now expects a moderately moderately paced economic expansion to play out in the future. But it's also watching the risks, both external and local. So let's watch that scene. I think the Turnbull factor has been a help, uh, even though it's sort of steadying now. Yeah, now there's some fascinating corporate news, Gary. After lots of speculation last weekend that Tabcor and Tats were planning a merger that would create a gambling behemoth worth about $9 billion, the two can't agree on the terms of the corporate marriage. Now, Tabcor confirmed the parties have been talking without much success and no further talks were planned. And in its statement to the market, Tats said the two had been unable to come to any agreement on what it called a nil premium exchange ratio. Now, that's basically the term for a marriage of equals where companies get together to exchange shares and allow shareholders to benefit from the synergies. But the Tabcor share price has fallen, and that makes it just about impossible to have a marriage of equals. Because they ain't equals. That's right. Now, newly minted boss of explosives and mining services company Orica, Alberto Calderon, has availed a huge loss in the first full year results announcement uh, this week. Calderon, who came to the job in May, said the company's share buyback program would be immediately cancelled after the group swung deep in the red with a loss of $1.267 billion for the 12 months through to September. And that compares with last year's $603 million net profit. Now, also about 250 jobs will be lost at Arium Steelworks in Wyala. As the company seeks to cut costs, jobs will go over the next six to eight months and will include about 200 workers directly employed by Arium and up to 50 contractors. That, that's on the back of Blue Scope Steel doing that's a right. with the uh, that's right. at Port Kembla. Tough times for the steel industry, yeah. Now, Asiano is going to allow a cube-led consortium to study its account after last week receiving a rival bid from the group in an attempt to outmanoeuvre the 8.9 $9 billion Brookfield offer. Now, Asiano says it's granted Cube, which also comprises global infrastructure partners in the Canada, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, the opportunity to carry out due diligence on its $9.25 share bid. But Asiano said in the absence of any superior proposal capable of acceptance, the board will unanimously recommend Brookfield. Now, earlier last week, Brookfield succeeded in neutralising Cube's initial offer that delivered a 20% blocking stake by securing court approval to defer the vote on the proposal that Cube opposed. Now, sales of A2 milk have skyrocketed, rising more than expected on the back of strong demand from China. And sales are going so well, the company's revised its sales forecast from $267 million and profit of $12 million to revenues reaching $285 million and earnings before interest tax appreciated and amortisation of $22 million. And what's extraordinary 
January as sales have soared in the first four months of this financial year. Now, group revenue for A2 Platinum Infant Formula in the four months to October 2015 totaled 38 million or 47% of group revenue. And that's just in the first four months of a year. And that was way ahead of the figure for this time last year, which came out at 8.7 million. And China's driving a lot of that growth. Uh, Chinese middle class feeding babies and never forget the Chinese baby formula that had uh, melamine in it. That's and right. they died. And uh, meanwhile, finally, mining giants BHP, Billet and Vale have been fined 1 billion reais uh, in Brazil, or that's uh, US $262 million, to fund the cleanup after the mining disaster in Brazil that killed 11 people. And the financial settlement was all part of a deal hammered out by federal and state prosecutors and Samarco Mineracal, which is a joint venture run by the two mining companies. And that's it for now, Gary. Good, Leon. And... uh Next week? Next week, we've got a fantastic interview with a farming specialist, Warren Davies. Fascinating to talk to him. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.